Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to my YouTube channel. My name is John Campia, and this is a companion video. What are companion videos? Well, I'm awfully glad that you asked. See, every day on the John Campia Show, Monday through Friday, we take the second half of the show to take your live comments and questions. However, we normally don't have enough time to get through all the questions that get sent in. But if you sent in those questions and you tipped in to support the channel, I want to make sure you don't have to wait too long to get those questions answered. So we gather them up, and we address them here on companion videos. And by the way, if you want to send in a question to be read during the second half of the John Campus show or read in a companion video, simply go down into the description of any of our videos and click on the tip link, or you could enter it in manually at www.streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You'll be getting your question read on one of our shows, if, of course, we deem it appropriate to use on one of our shows. And, of course, you'll be supporting our channel at the same time and all of us involved with the John Campus show Thank you guys so very much for your support. Now, this is being recorded on Monday night. This morning, we kind of had our first episode of our of our new format with me and uh, Kimberly Curran in and, of course, Ray being in studio, inter interacting with the chat, live chat and everything, too. I'm not going to lie to you. I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun. It is always better, in my opinion, when you're doing a show like this to be with somebody in person. And uh, having them in today just, I thought, gave a great energy to it. It certainly made me have a lot of fun uh, doing it. So I really liked it, and I hope you guys did too. And we had a few technical snafus along the way. Uh, you guys who watched the show this morning probably saw that we had some technical issues. We had to start the show an hour late. I think we'll be good for tomorrow, fingers crossed. But uh, anyway, yeah, there's that. And 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 listen, before we get into... The questions. If you're watching a companion video, that means you're probably one of our regular viewers. And I thought I would touch on something here because a lot of people have been writing and asking about it. I mean, even before the new format, but especially now the new format. And that is, what is Robert Meyer Burnett's role going to be with the John Campia show moving forward? And I thought I would just address that here just to kind of alleviate any questions about it. So I'll just say this. I, I don't know when you're going to see Rob on the show again. Now, before you jump to conclusions, let me explain all that. But yeah, I honestly don't know when you're going to see Rob uh, on the show again. But don't worry, Rob is quite healthy and is still very, very active. So let me explain uh, as we get to it. So let me start by saying this. You know, I just talked about how it's really great having the energy of people in the room. Well, with the John Campia show, it was always the intention to have when there's a guest we're in the same room together. And you know, that's how Rob and I always did it. Rob was always in the room with me, whether we were at, you know, my little home studio or whether we were at the stream studio, whatever, we were always in the same room together. Now, and that was always the intention. That's the way it was always supposed to be. I just believe the energy is better. The chemistry is better. There's just, like I said, there's just a different energy to it. And I prefer it a lot. And I think it just plays better. But at any rate, that kind of got hiccuped a little bit with the pandemic. So with the pandemic, I think Rob and I went almost like six to seven months without actually seeing each other face to face. But when the pandemic hit, obviously, you know, we went to more remote sort of things and stuff like that. And we've kind of stayed with that for a while. But it was always kind of my intention to go back to being people in person. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons we moved was so that I could get we could get a place that I would have a bigger space for you know a, a larger studio so I could fit people more comfortably, uh, one or two people more comfortably in the same room with me. And that was kind of the idea. 
And as we've been getting into the waning days of the pandemic, as, as we further get closer and closer to, you know, moving past the pandemic, and we're not there yet, but as we get closer and closer to it, I've been thinking a lot more about doing the things in studio. Now, a few weeks ago, which was completely unrelated to anything else, I just realized, you know, I haven't done like a week's worth of shows by myself, like when it, where I didn't have like either a, a Chris Carr or an Aaron Cummings or a, or a Robert Meyer Burnett with me. So I decided I was just going to do a week of shows myself. So just for fun, I did a week for shows myself. Then the following week, uh, which I believe was last week, uh, Rob texted me and let me know he was working on this very exciting uh, project, animation project that he was working on very hard and he wasn't going to be available all week. It's like, cool, you do that stuff. Of course, he's got that Dota thing on Netflix. And of course, Tango Shalom, which all of you should go and check out and support, uh, was out there too. And uh, so, so there was that. And then he had some family in town and just all that kind of stuff. Now, a number of days ago, uh, I got on the phone with Rob and we had a, we had a conversation where I let him know that I had decided that I was going to move everything back to having guests in the same room with me again. And I talked to him, I said, you know, Rob, as I look back at our old shows, the energy and the, the dynamic and the chemistry between us was just sharper and better and had more energy to it. We're in the same room. And he totally agreed. He totally agreed. And I said, I just think it's time now to get back to that. I think it's time to get back to that. And he agreed. And I said, now, look, I understand because it'd be about an hour drive for you. I don't expect you to be on the show as often as you were, but I would, I think it'd be great if you could still make it, you know, one or two times a week, I'll pay you a little bit more to make up for gas and all that kind of stuff. And he said, yeah, no problem. No problem. We can do it once or twice a week. That'd be great. That'll be no problem. It'd be fun to get in the room together again. I'm like, awesome. Awesome. When we talked some more. And then I told my audience I told my audience, now this is not me trying to throw anybody in the bus. I just want my audience to understand what happened. So I tell my audience as they were asking me, hey, when's Rob come back? I say, hey, don't worry. Rob's not going to be on as often. You're not going to see him three to four times a week, but he's going to be on every week. Don't you worry about it. It's going to be great. So I'm telling my audience this. I'm telling my audience, Rob's going to be on. He's going to be on every week, once or twice, a couple times a week, maybe some, maybe some weeks only once, whatever, but he's going to be on a couple times a week because that's what he told me. Like a day later, I had a number of people on social media writing to me and saying, uh, John, you told us Rob was going to still be on the show, but he just said on his YouTube channel that he wasn't going to be on the show anymore and that he was doing his own morning show. And I'm like, that's news to me. I had no, Rob and I just talked like 48 hours ago. He thought, yeah, absolutely. It's best we're in the same room. He said, yeah, it's going to be no problem for me to come out there a couple of times a week. And then I heard from other people saying that he said he couldn't do my show anymore. Now, look, Rob and I have communicated with each other since then, and it's it's everything's cool. Everything's fine. I have no problem that he considers the drive to be a little bit of a pain. Hey, I, I get it. That's I get it. I was kind of surprised when we were talking that he said it was going to be no problem. But, you know, there was that. And, you know, he also expressed to me that he hasn't really even had time to put much effort into his own YouTube channel because of all the stuff he's been doing. And listen, as somebody who runs my own YouTube channel, I completely understand the need to devote more time and energy to his own YouTube channel. Totally get it. Now, look, when, when Collider fired Rob, which was a real dick move on their part, but when Collider fired Rob, I was the one to reach out to him and say, Hey, listen, if you, I'd love to have you on my show. If Collider don't want you, 
their loss. Come on and work with me. And then he was doing stuff with me. And of course he was doing stuff with Schmodown. And, and when Schmodown let him go, um, I, I didn't care what the popular opinion was or what other people were saying. Uh, I said, don't you worry, Rob, you got a place here with me. You've got a place here with me doing my show with me. Now I didn't do those things because I'm the patron saint of lost causes. I did those things because Robert Meyer Burnett is real talented at this. He's got a real gift. I think some of his ideas and opinions are complete lunacy, but that I'm sure he thinks the same of mine. That's part of what made it fun. I, I, I did that because I think he's got a real gift for it. And I thought it would be good for him. It would be good for me. It'd be good for the audience. If, if he was, it's better if he's on the air. And, uh, you know, when I was doing my documentary, you know, Rob was a big help to me in helping me get like Ashley Miller on my show. Like Ashley Miller's in my documentary because Rob is the one who set that up. And I'll always be really grateful to him for that and stuff like that. And, and Rob's great. Rob's great. So I tell you all of that to, to say, yeah, listen, I'm not going to say Rob's never going to be on the show again, but I just, the honest answer right now is I don't know when he'll be able to be back on again. And I, as somebody who has poured a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into building my YouTube channel, I totally respect and admire the fact that he wants to pour a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into things that he's pursuing, not only his really cool projects, but also his own YouTube channel. So yeah, I just wanted to address that. Uh, let it be known what's going on. I've seen like everybody loves drama. So it's so funny reading the comments section and saying, oh, this happened and this happened. It's like, no, no, that's. That's not what happened. Look, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I told Rob I wasn't particularly thrilled that he told me he was still going to be on the show. And then instead of telling me that he changed his mind because the drive's going to be a pain that I had to find out from other people on social media, but whatever, it's actually all good. Uh, Rob is great at this. Rob has got a, a tremendous on-camera presence. He's got a real gift for communicating. And you know, to me, the, the mark of a good pundit is not if their opinions are the same as mine. The mark of a good pundit is somebody who is really good at communicating those opinions, whether they're opinions I agree or disagree with. And uh, Rob's got a real good gift for that. And so I encourage you to continue to support Rob. Uh, check out Whatever projects he has out on Netflix now and continue will continue, make sure you check out Tango Shalom. And uh, yeah, so there's that. I just thought I'd let you guys know about that. All right. With that down and out of the way, let's get to the purpose of companion videos, which is, you know, answering the questions that we haven't had a chance to get around to answering yet. All right. Our first question that we're going to start getting caught up with is Jacob Albert, who writes, Hey, John, sorry if you already answered this, but have you seen the first episode or second of the new miniseries Dexter New Blood? How did you like it? Will you do short reviews every week or will you do a spoiler discussion after the last episode? Thanks. No, I'm not going to be doing any of that, although I, I was thinking about it, but I don't have the network that it's on, even though I'm a big Dexter fan. Here's what's funny. L let me show you this. Um, this got sent to me. It's a big goodie box for Dexter New Blood that was sent to me uh, by Showtime and by the good folks of Budweiser. It's got a bunch of stuff in there, and I, I don't even drink alcohol, but it's got a bunch of stuff in there. Very, very cool. But one of the cool things that's in that box, it just showed up yesterday. One of the cool things that's in that box is a one-year subscription to Showtime. So tomorrow night, Ann and I are going to start watching Dexter. Now it's too late. I missed the opportunity to start doing like kind of weekly recaps of it. But to be honest, 
I don't even know if I could do weekly recaps because I don't know if enough people are watching it, but I am going to start watching it tomorrow and I will at least at the very minimum on my, on my show mentioned uh, what I think of it so far. All right. Thanks for writing that in Jacob. All right. Next up, uh, Emperor D writes, empty your mind, be formless shape. Oh, this is Bruce Lee quote, uh, shapeless like water. You put water in a cup. It becomes the cup. You put water in a bottle. It becomes a bottle. You put water in a teacup. It becomes a teacup. Water may flow or it may crash. Be water. My friend, actually, that was the name. I think be water. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was actually the name of a ESPN 30 for 30 documentary on Bruce Lee. I think they named it be water or something like that. Anyway, uh, Christopher Rosado writes, Hey John, I got a no way home theory for you in that film during the fight on the bridge between Spider-Man and Doc Ock. I think Doc Ock will destroy the Iron Man suit. Oh God, I hope so. That would be great. Uh, and doing so will make the nanotech fuse with his robotic arms, upgrading them. I don't know that that's how nanotech works, but it would be kind of funny if he destroyed the Iron Man Jr. outfit and then the Iron Man Jr. outfit merged with Doc Ock, making him even stronger. That'd be kind of cool. I would just be happy to see the Iron Man Jr. armor gone and just have Spider-Man be Spider-Man again. But uh, whatever, I'm still looking for... I'm Whatever they do with it, I'm sure I'm going to love it. All right, thanks for writing that in, Christopher. Uh, Christopher also writes... Hey, John, I read online that apparently during the credits of Hawkeye, instead of the normal Marvel Studios Presents, it has Marvel Studios Presents a Kevin Feige production. If this is true, is there any really any real significance to this change? I have not watched it yet myself, but if they do that now, that is a significant change. I mean, it could be Disney really trying to kiss up to Kevin Feige um, <laughs> to... to lure him or woo him into staying at Disney. Cause you guys know, I've, I felt for a while that there's a ticking clock on how much longer Kevin Feige is going to stay at Disney. I believe he's going to start feeling there are greener pastures. A better analogy is new mountains to climb. He's accomplished everything there is to accomplish at Disney. He, he got up, he got a comic book movie nominated for best picture at the Academy Awards. He got a comic book movie. It, it may not sound like a big deal now, but you think over the course of the last four decades, unthinkable. He got a comic book movie to be the number one all-time box office film ever, at least for a little while. Avatar is the number one film again, but for a while, Endgame was the number one all-time box office film. He had a movie nominated for Best Picture. It is by far the most dominant genre of films in the world. He has produced, whereas like Kathy Kennedy has a far more awards-laden producer's credits to her name, there's no producer ever has been or maybe ever will be that will have more billion-dollar films under his credit than Kevin. What, I've been saying this for a while, what is left for him to prove? What is left for him to do at Marvel? He's peaked. Let me rephrase that. What there is for him to do at Marvel has peaked. There's, there's no topping that mountain anymore. The only way to top what he's already done is to move on to the next mountain, move on to the next challenge. And whether that means Star Wars or whether that means DC or whether that means taking over a resurging Harry Potter franchise. I, I'm just making stuff up, but I just, you know, I think that for a while and maybe, maybe, Especially with the way they pissed him off with the way they handled the whole Scarlett Johansson situation. You know that pissed him off. Maybe that whole a Kevin Feige production thing is just a um, 
symptom or a little bit of the aftermath of maybe Disney trying to woo him? I mean, I don't know. I'm just speculating and talking out of my ass here, but you never know. You never know. All right. Next up. Uh, Raj writes, Hey, John, I really appreciate you. Thank you so much, Raj. I want to be able to enunciate words the way you do. Uh, I know what a source is now because of you. I watch what we do in the shadows because of you. Awesome show, by the way. I still haven't. Oh, no, I did watch the finale. It was incredible. Um, and now when I argue with people about stuff, I just say it's all subjective. As long as you're not arguing about objective truth, like the height of a tree or the weight of a, of a stone, which is objectively true. But yes, when you're arguing about movies, just end it off. When you no, instead of saying I agree to disagree, just say, you know what? It's all subjective. You fell that way. I feel this way. It's all good. We're friends. Anyway, thanks, Raj, for writing that in. I appreciate that, man. All right, Gunther writes. Free guy. It's crazy how that movie made me think about one girl. Like, dude, I was enjoying the movie and out of nowhere got all emotional in my seat. Shang-Chi is top-tier Marvel, by the way. Just watch it again. It absolutely is top-tier Marvel. I don't think it's like a top three MCU film of all time, but it is top-tier Marvel. And I'm ready to wake up early to watch Hawkeye. I mean, yeah, for me, luckily, being in Los Angeles, it means I get to watch it at midnight. I get to watch it at midnight. Uh, other people, you know, on the East Coast, they got to either stay up till 3 a.m. to watch it or they just have to wait till the next day. So uh, midnight's pretty good and I'm looking forward to starting. I mean, I don't like the trailers, but I got a good feeling it's probably going to be pretty awesome. Thanks for writing that in, Gunther. All right. E writes, in Homecoming, Childish Gambino uh, was Aaron. And when he was getting weapons, he said he has a little nephew that lives here. Uh, they never called him Prowler in live action. Could he come in and help Peter thinking he's he's Miles and also as an uncle big stretch? Now, now I honestly think uh, when Gambino was in that movie, it was strictly as a as a kind him saying my nephew. That was just an Easter egg. That was completely just an Easter egg. I, I, so I don't expect that to go anywhere. Never know. Could be wrong. But I expect that to go nowhere. I don't expect to see him in this new movie at all. All right. The Sock writes, Disney needs to do better about how they present post-live stream content. I couldn't watch live, and I was looking for trailers of their new stuff and really had to dig to find the Marvel Studios and Pixar 2021 sizzle reels they put together. I agree. Listen, I really do appreciate more and more than I think about it, the format of Disney Plus Day. I think I appreciate it more and more the way they get handled, like certain things, just every five minutes drop on Twitter. I thought that was pretty cool. And then for the stuff that the audience is kind of more excited about and want to talk about the Pixar stuff, the MCU stuff, the Star Wars stuff that wasn't there, but putting that together in video packages, I, I really do like the format. However, they got to do a better job putting actual interesting content in that format. And then, yes, you're right how to present that package of what was presented after the fact. Because that's when most people watch this stuff, is after the fact. And so I think you're absolutely right on that. That is something they need to work on, Sock. Well said. All right, next up, Doyle writes, one, Aquafina was the voice for that swimming dragon in Raya and the Last... Yes, she was. She was the voice. That she was great as the dragon in Raya. Uh, then was in Shang-Chi with another swimming water spitting dragon. Uh, two, your thoughts on the shadows. I don't know what the shadows is. I hate how they did Colin... Ro oh, you probably mean what we do in the shadows. I hate how they did Colin Robinson. Um, three, the Marcus Mumford score in Ted Lasso is great. Well, there's a lot of different things there. But you know what? I... 
re- I don't want to give too much away for people who haven't watched it yet, but I really like what they're doing with Colin Robinson. Like the second to last episode, you're like, oh my God. But then the end of the finale, you're like, oh my gosh, what are they doing with this? I thought that was a pretty good way to end off the season. I'm going to be very excited to see where they go next season. All right. Thanks for writing that in Doyle. Uh, next up, Johnny Wall writes, Hey guys, I'm planning on buying a laptop that I'll be using for schoolwork and editing short films together. Nice. What would you recommend for, oh, under $500? Ooh, for editing video? I mean, look, there's there's a lot of thing, laptops you can get to edit video. But to edit well, like with with smooth playback and not having to sit around all day for it to, to actually render of, you know, not having to wait half a day for it to render a five minute video or I don't know that there's one I'd recommend. I don't know that there's one off the top of my head that I can think of that I would recommend. I mean, honestly, I would say, I mean, it breaks your price, your, your budget, but I would say the new M one MacBook air, uh, I picked up one of these. It's my it's my daily lap- laptop. Like I do my heavy work on my desktop PC, but my daily work um, is you know when I'm sitting around outside or living room. My daily driver laptop is a MacBook Air. Now it is more expensive than you're looking for, probably twice as expensive what you're looking for. But you can buy. But it's great. I mean, you can do video editing on this that I never thought, and you can get it for a thousand bucks. Now, again, that is 500 on top of the 500 you want to spend, but it is a fantastic experience. You put DaVinci Resolve on that MacBook Air, which I have. Awesome video editing experience on a laptop. Awesome video editing experience on a laptop. It's fantastic. Uh, Premiere is is better now, now that they do have it optimized for the M1 platform. Uh, They had some issues with it when it was still going through the Rosetta translation, but... And that's fine, but you put, it's free, DaVinci Resolve, it's free. You put DaVinci Resolve on a MacBook Air, the M1 MacBook Air, and not just that, like everything, it's a joy to use. That laptop is a joy to use. So I would recommend doing what you need to do to to raise that extra 500 bucks and and get the MacBook Air because you will not regret it. I, I don't think you'll regret it at all. Anyway, I hope that's helpful, Johnny. All right, next up, Dangerous D writes, hey, John. What's your take on crowdfunded films? I know John Schnepp used crowdfunding to do his documentary, but I other film, but I other films like Monster of Man, Veronica Mars, uh, Abstentia were made but not profitable. What are the incentives to invest in these films? And is it the future? No, no, you don't understand. Crowdfunding is not investing. You're like you're not becoming a part owner of the film when you crowdfund it. Um, you are basically contributing and donating so that that project can come to fruition, but th- there's no return on investment, right? You got to understand that you're not investing in the film. So once you contribute to that film getting made, you're not going to see that money back. You don't get money back. You're not part owner of it. You're not anything like that. So whether that movie doesn't make a cent or whether that movie makes $10 million. It doesn't matter. Like you're not getting any of that. The incentive is if you want to support those creators, you want to support those creators. You know, somebody like John Schnepp, where there's no way that the death of Superman lives, what happened ever could have been made 
without crowdfunding. It never could have been made without crowdfunding because Schnapp certainly didn't have the money to make it all happen. And uh, yeah, so there's that. Now, so I think crowdfunding is great for projects like that, where I, I'm not going to say I have a problem with, where I'm iffy, where I still haven't quite figured out how I feel about it, is when millionaires use crowdfunding to get a movie made. That's when I start, I don't know how I feel about that. Like Veronica Mars, that, that crowdfunding project they did for it, that was made, that was millionaires making that project. They could have paid for it themselves. I remember Zach Braff and I adore Zach Braff. I am a big Zach Braff fan. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trashing on Zach Braff, but I'm saying, I remember he did this big crowdfunding thing. I'm like, you could have paid for that yourself. It's your project and you have the money to do it. Like a John Schnepp situation. He never could have done that. It only could have happened with the support of, um, of the fan base. That's the only way it could have happened. But when millionaires use it to get their projects done, again, I'm not trashing on it. I don't know how I feel about it. I would love some time to sit down with two smart people and two smart people argue opposite sides of this. One making really good arguments about why millionaires shouldn't be using crowdfunding and the other arguing why they shouldn't be doing it. Because honestly, I, like I said, I am in the middle. I am torn. I don't know how I feel about it. In general, crowdfunding is great. It gets projects that never have a possibility of getting made made. But how do I feel about when people who very easily could have paid for it themselves get their fans to pay for it instead? I don't know. I don't know. Again, I think there's probably some good arguments about it that I'm not even thinking. All right. Thanks for sending that in, Dangerous. Next up, Jordan Wilson writes, you say director's cuts aren't the definitive version of the film. For me, they're not for me. That, that's all. Uh, while I agree, I can't help but strongly believe that the movie Kingdom of Heavens, that's always the one that comes up. Every single time this, this, this topic comes up, everybody wants to bring up Kingdom of Heaven for obvious reasons. Uh, director's cut most certainly is the definitive cut. It is very different from the uh, poor initial release. Again, I still think the theatrical version is the definitive version. I think the director's cut is the better version. But when I think of Kingdom of Heaven, I don't think of the director's cut. I think of the theatrical version. There's also this other thing called the director's cut, and it happens to be the better version. But it, to me, it's still, that's the movie that was finished. That's the movie that was released to the public. That's the version. That is the version of the movie. The director's cut is a secondary version. It's a better version, but it's still a secondary version. At least, again, I'm not saying that's true for other people. I'm just saying that's how my mind works when I think of it. That's all. That's it. All right. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on that, Jordan. All right. Next up, we have uh, Dr. Nova who writes, I think in terms of X-Men, it works better if they are hated with other superheroes running around because the hatred for mutants represents racism or homophobia, etc. So having people hate mutants, but not other superheroes will make the message clearer. I get that, but it still doesn't make any sense. What Dr. Nova's talking about is the other day we were talking a little bit about X-Men and how they're going to bring them in. And I was like, this is, I've never, even as a comic book reader, I've never felt that this has been adequately addressed. Why would the general public hate mutants, but not 
hate other superheroes? Why would they hate one group of people who have superhuman powers and abilities to do things, but love and adore and cheer all other superpowered beings who have the power to commit mass destruction if they wanted to and if they needed to? Some are born that way, some are not. There are even there are characters in the MCU who are born with powers that they don't call mutants. And so I don't know how you would explain in a Marvel Cinematic Universe why the world hates and fears mutants but loves the Avengers. You know what I'm saying? Why they would hate and fear mutants but, hey, there's this new guy on the scene, Doctor Strange, that everybody's now talking about. Like even in Eternals Dimension, are you like Doctor Strange? Like, right? How come one set of super enhanced people are hated and feared and others aren't. I get why you would want one group to be hated and feared, but you also then have to make it make sense. And I'm just saying, I don't even know that I've ever felt that the comics did that right. It's always been kind of a thing like, yeah, we just don't really address it. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm sure there are comic titles that have tried to address it, but I've personally never heard like a really good breakdown about how you reconcile that. So yeah, that's, that's my thoughts on that doctor. So you're right. The whole idea about mutants and the issues with the world are supposed to be, um, allegories of racism, homophobia, things like that. But you got to explain to me why, you know what I mean? And that's, that's a challenge facing Kevin Feige. It's going to be neat to see how he does that. All right. Next up, uh, Shamar Pena writes one of two. Hey, John, just wanted to thank you for getting me hooked on Yellowstone. It's so good, isn't it? Um, it's fucking amazing. And Beth has to be my favorite character. Beth is a fantastic character. Oh, and I've got to say one of my favorite episodes so far is season three, episode four, when you see the bikers come back to the ranch and JD is sitting on the tree trunk. I almost shat my pants. He is so freaking menacing. Kevin Costner fucking nailed this role. I, I'm telling you guys, I was very late to the party for Yellowstone. Super, super late to the party for Yellowstone. And I'm so glad I had people turn me on to it because it's awesome. I breeze through the three existing seasons in a matter, I think in a matter of a week or four days or something. I can't remember exactly how long, but it was a real short period of time that I just devoured my way through the first three seasons. And now season four has started. This show is awesome. I call it the Godfather with Cowboys. Um, there might be other good comparisons as well, but if you're not watching Yellowstone, go back and start watching, watching right from season one. It's fantastic. And it just gets better and better and better. I'm really, really loving this show. All right. Next up from planet Houston writes, I watched free guy when in theaters and really liked it. I was fascinated by the depth of the story and the tangible portrayal of virtual reality, mixing with real life and reminded me of the Truman show to a degree. Yeah. I've heard a lot of people compare that to Truman show. Don't have a good day, John have a great day. I, you guys have heard me say it before. I wasn't expecting a lot from free guy. I wasn't expecting a whole ton from free guy. I mean, Ryan Reynolds, good Canadian kid, is my number one favorite movie star in the world right now. But even then, I thought, okay, I mean, it's kind of been there before with this kind of material. I was stunned how good, how much I love that movie. It's a wonderful, it's, it's the kind of movie that makes your face laugh and your heart smile. You know what I mean? Makes your face laugh and your heart smile. 
And that's a good time at the movies to me. So Anne and I went several times to the theaters to go watch it. It's the movie's fantastic and I couldn't be happier for its success. It's it's really it's a little movie that could and I'm so glad the success that it's had. All right. Next up. Uh, big, uh, Bob's big fart writes, greetings, John. Thank you for all the effort you put into this show. Thank you so much, man. It adds such a nice source of levity to my day. I also think that you are a much better comedian than you give yourself credit for. I'm not a comedian. The Christian Harloff, Mark Ellis, Manola Zantanos. Um, these guys are comedians. These guys, I'm, I'm just a blabbering idiot. I could never do what those guys do. I can get on a stage in front of 10,000 people and talk. I can do that. I have done that. And the easiest thing in the world for me is to get on a big stage and talk. But get on a big stage and be funny? Man, that's just, that's a gift that guys like Ellis and, and, and Harloff and Manolis and Guys like that can do that I just think is amazing. And it takes a lot of testicular fortitude, man. To get up in front of a crowd and try to be funny and risk bombing hard, that takes a lot of balls, man. And to do it well, mm, I, I really, really admire people who can do stand-up comedy. I really, really do admire it. All right, thanks for that, Big Bob. All right, uh, Mr. McFuckTuck Rikes. Hello, John. Sometimes when I go to the movie theater, I go alone. I almost feel a little self-conscious, wondering what other people at the theater might think of me going to a movie without any friends slash partner along. Thoughts? I've, you know, it's funny. I'm always surprised how many people write in and ask me this. You know, I don't always have somebody to go to the movies with, so I go alone. Is that weird? No! What? what? It's like, if you're sitting at home, it's like, oh man, I'm really in the mood for a milkshake. Is it... Is it weird that I go to McDonald's alone to get a milkshake? Is it weird that I go to whatever milkshake shack or whatever to get a milkshake alone? No. What's wrong with it? Hey, man, I'm in the mood to see a movie. Nobody available to go with me right now? Cool. What, I need somebody to hold my hand to watch a movie? No, man, listen, when I was still living in Burbank and I lived like a 12-minute walk up the road from my favorite movie theater, which is the AMC Burbank 16, and I live like a 12-minute walk up the road. Many times. I'm like, oh, Ann's busy? I've, I've, man, I've got like between now and 9 o'clock. I don't have any plans till like 9 o'clock. I got between now and 9 o'clock free. I'm going to walk down to the AMC, especially once I have my you know, A-list. I'm going to go down to the AMC. I'm going to go watch a movie. It doesn't matter if you're there by myself. Hell no. There's nothing wrong with that. Any more than looking at somebody strange. Oh. That, that person's getting a milkshake by themselves. That's so strange. No, it's not. It's perfectly good, man. You go to that movie by yourself. You go. I will. I'll continue to do that for sure. All right. Uh, next up, we got an anonymous viewer who writes, Hey, John, in the light of Eternal's disappointing critic scores, uh, there is more attention given to Rotten Tomato scores ratings lately. So I started to follow the audience ratings more closely Till I saw 92% rating for Red Notice. It's really a waste of time. See, okay, but there's a big, big difference. And I kind of touched on this on the John Campus show earlier today. There's a big difference between verified audience scores and random audience scores. Let, let me give you an example of this. Let me bring up um, Rotten, uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, let me just find a, a random movie here. Let me bring up, I don't know. Let's bring up Shang-Chi. Let's, for example, say Shang-Chi. Okay? So, when you're on Rotten Tomatoes, you see there's there's a couple of different things here, right? 
So you got the critic score and then the audience score. Here's the thing that you're looking for. Verified ratings. That's the key. Now, for many years, I kept telling people, Rotten Tomatoes audience scores are useless. Pay no attention to them. And the reason they're useless is anybody can just go on to Rotten Tomatoes and submit a score for it, whether they saw the movie or not. We saw tons of organized campaigns to go and downvote certain movies to make other movies look better. And it's just, it, it rendered all audience ratings online, whether it's IMDb or at the time Rotten Tomatoes, completely useless. Now, Rotten Tomatoes responded to that by tying it in with the number one online ticketing uh, sales place, Fandango. And they made it where only people who they verify bought tickets to that movie and saw that movie then have the privilege of submitting a score. So that prevents people from like, oh, no, I didn't go see, I don't know, what's a movie I can make up right now? Uh, uh, I don't know, Lamb. I didn't see Lamb, okay? I did not see the A24 film Lamb. It just looks too weird to me. Anyway, yeah, I just think it looks stupid. So I'm going to go on Rotten Tomatoes and say the movie's stupid but you didn't even see the movie. Doesn't matter. I can still go and say it's stupid on their rating and that reflects, right? That's useless. But now when you see this 89% or 98%, I should say, that's done by over 10,000 verified people, 10,000 people who they know actually saw the movie. So there's value in that now. There wasn't value before, but now we know this is actually people voting on it who actually saw it. That's verified. On the other hand, if we were to go over to uh, Red Notice on here, it says verified, right? But the thing is, it's not verified. That's the thing. It's not verified. And that's something I wrote to the people at Rotten Tomatoes about. It's like, why does it say verified? It's not verified. Because they cannot monitor who actually sat at home and hit play on their, uh, on their Netflix account. Now, there was a small screening. There was a small window of theatrical exhibition of it, right? I, I, some people didn't know that. They actually played it on a few screens. And you notice how where under Shang-Chi it said, uh, what did it say? It said uh, 10,000 reviews. This one says 100 verified. So it could be that this is this 92%. It is theoretically possible that this could be a matter of they're only taking reviews from people who actually saw went to go use Fandango and bought that very small window where you can go and watch this thing in a theater. And they're getting that from, from that hundred people. Maybe if that's the case, I wouldn't pay too much attention to that 92% rating because it's only from a sample size of a hundred random fans, as opposed to something like, again, Shang-Chi where there's like over 10,000 ratings there. Right. So again, it's a little bit of finessing you have to do when reading these things. It's a little bit of finessing. So with something like that's a Netflix movie, I wouldn't pay any attention to the good or bad. Like if, if, it's, a, if it's a Netflix movie, I wouldn't pay much attention to bad ratings. I wouldn't pay much attention to good ratings when it comes to audience ratings, to be honest with you, because there's just too small of a sample size if it's legitimate. 
It was just too small of a sample size. You just saw it. 100 versus 10,000 plus. So, yeah, it's. I wouldn't worry too much into it. I would Now, I am not sit, sitting here crap talking on red notice because I haven't seen it. I'm scared to see it. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm scared to see it. Because I'm a big fan of Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And I'm a huge fan of Ryan Reynolds. And I've heard from a lot of people that I trust their opinions that really didn't like the movie. And so because I love these guys so much, I'm straight up scared to watch it. I didn't think the trailers looked very good either, to be honest with you. I didn't think the trailers looked good. And then I started hearing from people that it's actually not very good. And then a bunch of you guys wrote into my show to tell me that the movie was quite bad. And I, I'm scared to watch. I mean, I really should watch it because I want to support anything Ryan Reynolds does. But I'm I'm scared. I'm scared that I'm going to hate it. And I don't want to watch a Dwayne The Rock Johnson and, and Ryan Reynolds movie that I hate. I don't want to hate a Dwayne Johnson and Ryan Reynolds movie. So I'm scared. I'm a little bit scared. But there's that. All right. Thanks for writing that in, man. All right. Next up, we go to Boris. Boris writes, hey, John. Uh, TV level advertisements in cinemas. Is that not a thing over there? I wouldn't mind it if it was all trailers, but here in Australia, it's 30 minutes, 50, 50 split more often than not like 50, 50 split between actual just commercials and movie trailers. Uh, who cares about phones and cars when watching a damn movie? Yeah. Look, I think when I was living in Canada, when I was still up in Canada, um, it was usually a mix when I came to LA and maybe I just lucky from all the movie theaters I go to, but I, I don't see commercials. It's just usually movie trailers, too many movie trailers coming from the guy who made a documentary about movie trailers, too many movie trailers, but still usually it's at least just trailers and not M&M commercials and feminine hygiene commercials and car commercials and which who cares about any of that stuff. I mean, I do see some commercials like, if a movie starts at seven o'clock, if it says it starts at seven, I've gone to movie theaters where I roll in at like six forty-five, and between six forty-five and seven, they'll play like random commercials on the movie screen. That's fine, like that's before the scheduled movie time starts. But then seven o'clock hits, and then they play thirty minutes of trailers. That's a little bit frustrating. But yeah, I think some places do, and some places don't. Just where I live in LA, it's not generally done. That once. The showtime hits that they actually show commercials. Uh, at least, maybe I've just been lucky that way. Thanks for writing that in, Boris. Next up, uh, the Draconic Druid writes, one of five. Okay, buckle in. Spoilers for a 70 to 85-year-old book series. <laughs> the last two months, I listened to Andy Serkis's Hobbit plus the Lord of the Rings trilogy audiobooks. Nice. Watching the extended movie cuts after each book. I can understand why people hated the Hobbit movies. I didn't mind them, but I think I'll have a more negative view on them now. I never watched The Fellowship and Two Towers Extended Cut, so it was interesting to see. If I never watched the movies, I'd have no idea who anyone is or the many locations. My greatest appreciation for the books was Faramir, uh, was much more honorable when meeting Frodo, Sam, and Gollum. And my least favorite scene in the movies wasn't in the book, when Gollum blames Sam for eating the food. Or wasn't that when Sam blames Gollum for eating the food? Anyway, Dracon four or five hated that scene because it made me hate Frodo, not because of the execution. Other than when the hobbits were leaving the Shire, I didn't think it dragged on with the lore, especially the kind, especially liked how Andy did the voices. Listening to the entire Bilbo Gollum riddle scene is a top three favorite chapter in all four books. I love that moment in the books, man. Love it. 
Uh, didn't know there was so much singing. I can seriously imagine uh, re-listening to the trilogy again in two to three years. Happy almost 20th anniversary, Fellowship of the Ring. And we are getting close to that. Dude, thanks so much for writing that in. And yeah, listen, one of the things that made me, I I'm with you. I understand why there are a bunch of people who don't like the Hobbit movies. It's a step down. The Hobbit movies are absolutely a step down from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. No doubt. I'm not arguing that in the least. Not in the least. But there's still something really special about them to me. One of the big weaknesses of the Hobbit trilogy to me, the, the movie versions, was that episode three, the third film was nothing but payoff, right? It wasn't, it never felt like its own true. Like when you go back and watch Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers and, and Return of the King, they each feel like their own complete movies. They all have their first act, second act, third act, all that kind of stuff. The Hobbit, I felt like the second movie was like act two and then act, act three was just this big, now everything comes to a head, right? Here's a great example of that. In the third movie, Thor and Oakenshield and the White Orc confront each other again. And it's supposed to have this big emotional payoff. But what the filmmakers forget is that it had been over a year, maybe two years, since we had even seen Thor and Oakenshield and the White Orc on the screen together. We've gone years without seeing them together. So when they finally meet each other on that battlefield again, it lacks some of that draw that emotional drama to it because we haven't even seen these two guys on screen together in a couple of years. And that was my thing. But to your point about the music, one of the things I loved when I was watching the first Hobbit movie um, was instantly the singing and the music. And that's what made it feel like the Hobbit to me. Oh, the misty mountains call through shadows deep. Like I was, I'm like, I'm watching this. Like, this is like right out of right out of my imagination from when I was reading the books or when they're, they're having the dinner party in Bilbo's house. Like all the dwarves are showing up and they're having this, this big party and stuff like that. I loved it. I, I love the fact that they did pay homage a lot to the music. I'm not as much as they should have. Oh, and by the way, I love the barrel riding. The barrel riding sequence, loved it right out of my imagination again. So yeah, there's a lot of things to be uh, disappointed about in the Hobbit films, but I still think there's a magic to them. Even though they're nowhere near as good as the Lord of the Rings films, I still think there's a magic to them. So yeah, there's that. All right. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on that Draconic Druid. I appreciate that very much, man. All right. Next up, Suthius writes, uh, a little bit of hypocrisy going on with Shang in Shang-Chi. In his fight with his father, he said that he and his sister needed their father after their mother died. However, Shang himself left uh, Zhengling all by... I, by the way, I know I'm mispronouncing Zhengling. I always pronounce it. I haven't figured out how to pronounce it properly yet. Anyway, Shang himself left Zhengling all by herself when he didn't return from his first assignment. Okay, yes, but he was a kid. He was a child. He was 14 years old. His father was an adult. His father was the parent. There's not a hypocrisy there. You can't hold 
the same standards to a 14-year-old kid. And I don't know, maybe there's some 14-year-olds watching this who are offended that I just called 14-year-old being a child. I'm sorry, but like there's a parent-child relationship. You cannot compare when a 14-year-old who's not even legally old enough to drive a car handles emotional turmoil and family responsibility differently than the way their parent does. And there's a causality there, Suthius. Part of the reason why he ran was because his father failed. Wenwu failed his responsibilities as a father. If Wenwu as a father had been there for his kids, if he made them in the midst of their loss feel loved and feel secure, none of that, any of of the other stuff would have happened. So no, it's it's not hypocrisy. It's a 14-year-old dealing with emotional, stressful situations as ill-equipped as they are to do it, comparing against the way a parental, a parental figure, an adult, dealing or abdicating their responsibility. So no, I don't see that as a, as a uh, hypocrisy at all. Totally different scenario, I believe. I believe it's a totally different scenario, brother. All right, next up. Chuck the Mystery writes, Hey, John. Uh, recently you had mentioned that Christopher Nolan is one of the rare directors who gets a percentage of the film gross. No, 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 no. He's one of the very, very rare percentage who gets as much as he does. There, there are many directors who can get, negotiate a cut, get certain points on a movie. That's not super rare. What is super rare is that no director gets the kind of percentage cuts that Christopher Nolan can demand. That, that's, that's what we're talking about. Anyway, uh, does the amount of points directors get on previous films they've made give them the ability to eventually get a percentage? They, no, it's the amount of money their movies make. Like if you're somebody, it's the amount of money and the amount of acclaim that your films get. Studios want to be in the Christopher Nolan business because not only, other than Tenant. Do his movies make great money? They're celebrated in in the art. They're celebrated in the industry. Now, look, movie studios just want to make money. I mean, it's still a business. That's what businesses want. I don't care if you're a jean-making business, a shoe-making business, a computer-manufacturing business, or the movie business. You're in business to make money. We get that. But even there's that. They still want to be known as the best. They still want to be known as the best. And if you, that's a huge feather in your cap if you've got Christopher Nolan working with you. Because you know when he makes his movies, they're going to get a lot of interest. They're going to get probably awards consideration. They're going to be talked about amongst the fandom as some of the best movies out there and blah, 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 blah. So when you're Christopher Nolan and you know every studio is fighting over the rights to be the studio that you make your next movie at, you can make bigger demands. The more demand you're in, the bigger demands you get to make. The more demand you're in, the bigger demands you get to make. And I mean, I'll, I'll just, I'll give you an example, but I'm trying to decide how much I can reveal and how much I can't. So when I was working for one of the previous companies I was working for, one of their competitors approached me and asked me to come over and do what I do for them. I knew that for for the the this very specific circle I was in, I was kind of in demand. So I knew that I could ask that company and tell them what I wanted was something ridiculous. 
And I knew that I could go back to my employer, let them know that this company is now coming at me and they're making me this offer. Can you do something to keep me here? And it was a really nice feeling. And I ended up staying and I ended up getting a raise. Uh, I ended up staying and I ended up getting a raise. But yeah, the more in demand you are, and that's like one of the very few times in my life that I could say I was in demand, but the more in demand you are, the more you get to demand. So it's when you're Christopher Nolan, you're the most in demand director in the business right now. You get to demand a lot and he certainly does demand a lot. No doubt about it. All right. Uh, next up, uh, we've got Chuck the Mr. who writes. Listening to your predictions, one of two, listening to your predictions about No Way Home, possibly having a $200 million opening if Toby and Andrew are in the next trailer, got me thinking. Would it then be a situation where the film was front-loaded, wherein everybody who wants to see it will see it opening weekend? Or will it have legs and go on and gross a billion or more worldwide? An opening like that... Uh, during pandemic times would be astronomical in and of itself, but could that even lead to an end game or, or avatar final tally? Thanks. Well, okay. Look, when you're talking about, there are two different phases here, opening and long-term how a movie opens is all about anticipation and marketing. How a movie opens is all about anticipation and marketing. Spider-Man No Way Home and its opening weekend is going to be completely dependent upon the anticipation that's been built for it and the marketing they've surrounded it with. And when I say marketing, I don't just mean the trailers. I mean everything they've done, all the back channel, behind the scenes, in the shadows, things that they have done to keep Spider-Man No Way Home in the conversation. And believe me, there's a lot of that spy craft that goes on in studio marketing today. It's not just the commercials and the trailers you see. The opening weekend is going to be all about that. The anticipation, excitement, and marketing. That will determine the opening weekend of the movie. Whether or not the movie has legs is then going to be about the quality of the movie. When people finally go and have that big adrenaline dump and finally see this movie, they've been so exciting, excited to watch, the marketing has pumped up, all that kind of stuff. What will determine whether or not they come back to watch it again, whether they will go back and watch it three times or more, and whether they will then tell their friends, you got to go see Spider-Man No Way Home, then it's no longer about the anticipation and marketing. Then it's about the quality of the film and the stickiness of the film. We can't possibly comment intelligently on what kind of legs is Spider-Man No Way Home going to have when none of us know if it's any good or not. Now, we have every reason to have confidence in it because John Watts has done a tremendous job with these films. He did a great job with Homecoming. He did a great job with Far From Home. There's no reason not to think he's going to do a great job with No Way Home. But still, until we know whether the movie's quite good or not, can't comment on that. But what we do know is the anticipation of the marketing. We know those two things. And so we can look at the opening weekend and go, yeah, we think this. Now, I don't know if they're going to reveal Toby and Andrew or whoever else at this big, big surprise Spider-Man two or Spider-Man second trailer event that they're doing tomorrow night on Tuesday. I don't know if they will. All I'm saying is if they do, they're going to crack 200 million opening weekend. I 
mean, I obviously I could be wrong about that, but I'm speculating and guessing. I I th- I would put fifteen bucks. Hell, I'd even put twenty bucks confidently on. Yeah, they're going to make two hundred million dollars. Yeah, they're going to make $200 million opening weekend of that. What the legs are going to be like, I don't know. We have to wait to see the movie. But uh, opening weekend is going to be absolutely huge, man. All right. Next up, uh, we've got uh, Chris W. who writes, one of two. My friends and I were talking about when the MCU will introduce the X-Men and what we as fans want to see. One of them brought up something I never considered. How will they explain Professor X, Professor X and Magneto's ages? Uh, they were kids in World War II, making them 90 plus. Unless they say being a mutant slows down aging, that will not work. For Professor X, moving him away from World War II isn't a problem, but Magneto's story is tied heavily to the events back then. Do you think they will address this? Thanks a lot for writing that in, Chris. Yeah, look, I've been actually talking about this for a couple of years now. Uh, we've talked about it on the show many, many times. Look, you can't just introduce new powers to these characters just for the sake of convenience. Aging slowly is not one of Magneto's powers. It's not one of Professor X's powers. You can't, I don't believe you can do that. That Professor X is all about his telepathy. Magneto, he is the master of magnetism. Oh, and, and just, and just out of nowhere for no logical reason whatsoever, Master magnetism. Oh, and and he ages really slowly. What? When the fuck did that happen? Oh yeah, when yeah he, Professor X, the world's most mighty telepath. Oh, and and he ages slowly. Since when? No. The to me the only real answer to that is it's not important about which specific tragedy that Magneto was witness to and survived through when he was young. What is important is that when he was young, he did go through a tragedy where he witnessed the worst of humanity. And unfortunately, there are many atrocities that have been done in our world since World War II. I mean, I I often go to the Rwandan genocide. I mean, if you don't know anything about the Rwandan genocide, hop on YouTube and do some looking up. It's one of the most horrific things that you've, you're going to be shocked that you didn't know more about it. You'll be like, how are we not talking about this every day? Like the, the, the evil that happened during the Rwandan genocide. It's crazy, but there's been others like in Eastern Europe and all. It's not important that the specific event that he went through was that one. What's important to the story is that he, as a child was a victim at the hands of, and he was witness to the most evil of humanity that turned his heart forever against humanity. And you're going to have to make it a more modern tragedy, a more modern cataclysm of the human nature than world war two was or else. Yeah, you're right. We're going to have a 90 plus year old professor X and Magneto kind of watering around. And while I'm cool with them being older, I don't know that you want to start your franchise like that. So, but no, I am against the idea of, yeah, master magnetism. Oh, and, uh, and he ages. What? Like you might as well say Magneto master of magnetism. And he can shoot his toenails out of his feet like bullets. How does that make any sense? It doesn't it makes no sense. So yeah, I think you have to ascribe to Magneto a different 
cataclysm of human nature, a different tragic event in the history, a dark time in history, a, a, a more modern dark event in human history than uh, than World War II. That's that's always been my take on that, and I still stand by that. Of course, Kevin Feige is going to come up with something great either way. All right, next up, Orange Grove writes, as Disney fans. How do we constructively and effectively affect change uh, at the company against bad JPEG policies, et cetera? Boycotts are an option. I, I, always, I think boycotts are useless unless there's an extreme moral issue at hand. Unless there is an extreme moral issue at hand, I generally reject boycotts. Uh, but I feel that will also hurt the filmmakers and studios, Marvel, et cetera, that we love. Thanks, Sean. I mean, here's the other thing, Orange Grove. The reality is this. We as fans, me too, me too, think we know everything. I'm guilty of this. We always think that because we read some headlines and we've read, we've read some stories and stuff like that, we feel like we know, we know the score when the reality is we probably barely know three or 4% of it. Am I a fan of Bob Chapek's leadership so far at Disney? No, I think he's done a pretty bad job, but Am, have I been walking the halls of Disney's studios in Burbank every day for the last six months? Have I talked to the people inside the studio who who also know and work with Bob Chapek every day and stuff like that? I haven't. So I can have my opinions. Should any major moves be made at Disney because of the opinions of a 3% informed individual fan named John Campius somewhere. No. And because of that, I, I, I don't think there should be a boycott to try to ouster Bob Chapek. I'm not happy with Bob Chapek. I'll express my opinions about the moves and decisions he makes that I don't like. I can even say that I can see him not being there for long unless he turns it, unless he starts learning and improving. But, but the reality is that's the opinion of a guy who knows three to 5% of what's actually going on. And I think fans myself included, we need to be self-aware enough to be cognizant of that. You know what I mean? So uh, the best thing we as fans can do is when the opportunity arises, it's just to voice our opinion. My opinion is I think a lot of the decisions Bob Chapex has made has been bad decisions and I hope he does better. And I hope he becomes a really good leader and I hope he can lead Disney into even a greater future. But right now, I think he's doing badly. And I think that's what we as fans should be doing. This talks of our oh, boycotts, and I'm going to have my way. I, I don't know. I, I've, I've never kind of felt like that. I, I've never bought into that myself, Orange Grove. But I think it's, it's a question that fans of properties are always going to struggle with. Like, how do we try to affect change in the object of our fandom effectively, responsibly? It's, it's a good discussion to have, Orange, and I'm glad you brought it up. All right. Next up, we got Ordinary Human Bartender, Jackie Daytona, Human Bartender, writes, Hi, John, Jackie Daytona here. That's a what we do in the shadows thing, by the way. I've uh, been watching since the four-year consideration days. That is going back a ways. Thank you for that, man. Uh, this has been an amazing year for me. I published my eighth book. Good on you, man. That's awesome. I published one, and I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Uh, you've been a constant inspiration to me and thousands. Never stop bringing on the filthy, you beautiful man. Oh, dude, thank Listen, it's 
first of all, I love getting messages and things from everybody, but it's always really kind of cool when somebody just wants to write in to say something encouraging. So congratulations on your accomplishments, dudes, and hitting those milestones. And thank you so much for the kind words. Mr. Daytona, by the way, go look up that episode, the Jackie Daytona episode of what we do in the shadows. Mark Hamill is the guest star in that episode and it's fantastic. All right. Just got time for a couple of quick more ones here, guys. Caitlin Eccles writes one of five. All right, here we go. Buckle in. Hello, John. First time writing in. Well, thank you for writing in, uh, Caitlin. Appreciate that. I've been wanting to tell you this for a while, but I've been so nervous. I started watching your YouTube channel after Collider's movie talk ended in 2020. When I Googled the best movie news show on the internet, uh, your channel constantly came up. Oh, that's kind of cool. Uh, I was actually pregnant when I started watching your show. Then COVID-19 hit. I was laid off from my job, scared for my future, my baby. It was a dark time for everyone. Your show was a constant in my life. Turning, tuning in every day kept my spirits up. In July of 2020, I gave birth to my son, Dylan. Congratulations. Long story short, I had postpartum depression. PPD is no joke. Again, your show was there for me during one of the hardest times of my life. Now it's been well over a year since I started watching your show. My son is 16 months. That's awesome. And he literally dances to your opening intro music. I feel like you're a friend I can chat with every day. Sometimes we disagree. Well, we're supposed to. Uh, but I love your perspective and generosity. Uh, I know it sounds cheesy, but thank you for being my movie friend. Have a great day, John. And congrats to Kim and Ray. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for that, Caitlin. That is awesome. First of all, congratulations on the birth of your son, Dylan. That is awesome. And you're right. I've, I've had friends who've, I had, I had this one friend who she had five kids. Her and her husband had five kids and the first like three were awesome and joyous. But then also with the fourth, she got hit with postpartum and it's like, it was really heavy and it was really hard. And she had to lean a lot on her family and friends and, and got through it all. But that can be challenging. And listen, Caitlin, the very fact that you allowed me to be a part of your day like that is, I, I can't even tell you how that makes me feel. That's, that's an honor. It's an absolute honor. So thank you so much uh, for sharing your, your story there. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the kind words and thanks for giving the shout out to Kim and Ray. It is, I love having them here and I'm having a lot of fun with them already. So thanks so much for that. All right. Uh, one last one we'll do here, guys, and then we'll wrap it up today. This one comes to us from Adam slash Fanjecture, our friend Fanjecture, who writes in, this weekend, my wife and kids adopted a family for the holidays for the first time. That's awesome, dude. Uh, they have a nine-month-old. We are thrilled to pay it forward and to help give them relief during this time in whatever way we can. We'll be doing this every year from now on. And dude, thank you so much for giving me an excuse to pump. First of all, thank you so much for that, Adam. Appreciate that. And I'm so glad you and your family have decided to do uh, the uh, the adoptive family. The adoptive family, you guys know, I every year around this time, we talk about this. Adopting a family for Christmas, contact your local municipality, ask how, if, if you, they have a, an adoptive family program, I'm sure that they do. And what they do is they match you up with a family that is struggling or has needs during Christmas time. And you kind of provide for them what they can't do, which is provide a Christmas for their family. And uh, I, I'll, I'll bring this up here. So Anne and I have loved being a part of this for, I want to say six or seven years now. Anne would have to tell you exactly how long we've been doing this, but it is awesome. 
every single year. They match you up with a family. You find out what their needs are, what their kids like and stuff like that. And it's just simple. You just provide a happy day. And the, the comparison I like to make is this. Um, we all know Joker, you know, saying all it takes is one bad day. I believe in the power of one good day. I believe in the power of one good day. That one good day can make, can have a tremendous impact. I really believe that. And you and I have the ability and the power to give that one good day to a family. So what I like to encourage everybody to do every year, and Adam, again, thank you so much for giving the opportunity to, to plug this, is yourself or even more fun, get together with a group of friends and decide how much money you guys are going to pull together, then get a hold of your local municipality to say, hey, we want to adopt a family this Christmas. What can we do? And you'll make it, you'll have a tremendous impact on a family's life. So go and do that. Thank you so much, Adam, for bringing it up. And thank you so much to you and your family for getting involved. And I hope more of you guys will get involved in doing that this Christmas. It's, uh, it's, it's life-changing. It's absolutely life-changing. So please do look into that. All right, guys, that'll do it. For this installment of the companion videos, thank you so much for being here, guys. Don't forget the John Capus Show returns tomorrow. Me, Kim, and, and uh, Ray will be in here. We hope you guys will join us for that as well. Hopefully, we'll start on time tomorrow without any technical difficulties. Fingers crossed. Anyway, guys, remember to do the four main things. Stay smart. Stay safe. Take care of yourselves. Please take care of the people around you. That'll do it for me, guys. My name's John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye.